Um, brilliant, as always, to have a few of our Redeemer Juniors with us. Um, I trust you guys have quiz sheets. If not, awesome. See me afterwards for thank for um, prize giving, as always. And uh, the reading this morning is John 17, 14 to 52. I think we've got a slide for that. It doesn't want to... There we go. Well done. And I gave the context for um, these verses last week, so we won't go into all that again. Do catch up online if you want. But the question as I read this passage now is this. How do these verses challenge any Christian? How does John 7, 14 to 52 on page 893 challenge any Christian? I think there's quite a few answers to that. See how many you can spot. But I'm now going to read John, 40, uh, John 7, 14 to 52. John 7, from verse, from verse 15, uh, 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I make a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from? But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him. For I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Um, some of those verses may have seemed a little cryptic, sometimes hard to follow John's logic and Jesus' reasoning and, and what's going on here. Um, that's, that's why we have people who don't have to have proper jobs like you guys who can be paid just to spend time studying this. So um, in the message in the next few minutes, I hope to unpick some of that and um, I hope that'll be helpful. But we need God's help. So let's pray for that now. Loving Father, John's Gospel is, is not always the easiest and we pray for your insight. Father, we, we pray that some of the, the themes and uh, logic here would emerge before our eyes in the coming minutes. And Lord, that's not just an intellectual thing, that's a spiritual thing. So would your Spirit give us humble, receptive, open, teachable hearts and would we see some amazing things in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what we have in this morning's passage is a, a fully orbed picture of Jesus with four main areas. Um, and the first is this. Jesus' teaching. <laughs> and we see this in verses 14 to 24. And I do recommend a Redeemer notebook if anyone wants something to take notes on. They're available at the back. Stick a hand up. Someone will bring you one. They cost three pounds. Um, but first of all, out of four main aspects of Jesus, we see his teaching in verses 14 to 24. And the first thing to see about his teaching is that it's powerful. Now, when I teach, even on a good day, I wouldn't say you guys marvel at my teaching. Um, occasionally, just occasionally, I might get a few letters of the alphabet looking back at me while I, while I preach might sometimes get the odd O, <laughs> and, and very occasionally, maybe even a, an uppercase Q, which is always amusing. <laughs> and you guys might, on a really good day, say to me as you leave, well, that was really helpful, thank you. But um, not so much marvelling. I don't often get like, <gasps> and yet look at verse 15. Because when Jesus teaches, the Jews therefore marvelled saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? I, I was blessed to get three years full-time seminary education. Amazing privilege. Jesus had zero formal education, and let, uh, uh, yet these guys are saying, wow, this, this guy has learning. If you look at the footnotes, another way of translating the Greek literally is, this guy knows his letters, knows his ABC, and some. 
And more than that, we see his teaching isn't just powerful, it's divine. Have a look at verse 16. Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And because it's divine, therefore it carries God the Father's own authority. Have a look at verse 17. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So Jesus' teaching is powerful, it's divine, it's authoritative, we've just seen it's trustworthy. The final thing to see about it here is that it's also rejected. More often than not, people's default response to it is to reject it, even religious people. In fact, in church history, including in Jesus' time up to this day, often especially religious people are the people who really reject Jesus' teaching. Hence verse 19. Jesus says, Has not Moses given you the law? In other words, even before my teaching, weren't you already given God's law, God's teaching? And yet none of you keeps the law, he says, verse 19. And then he points out the same attitude of rejection towards him. End of verse 19. Why do you seek to kill me? He's saying it's just like you and God's law through Moses. You, you just reject it. But his listeners just don't see it. They're very naive about the Jewish leaders wanting to kill him. And in verses 21 to 24, Jesus again exposes their rejection of him. And we won't go into those verses in detail now, but basically Jesus references the time he healed a man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. And we, we looked at that a few weeks ago. You can read about it in John 5, 1 to 15. And at the time, when he healed this, this man's whole body, as he was an invalid lying by the pool of Bethesda, the Jews in response didn't praise God. They were raging that he would break the Sabbath to do that. And Jesus then points out, they're perfectly happy to break the Sabbath over much smaller things like circumcision. They're furious that someone would heal a man's entire body on the Sabbath, and they're quite happy to break the Sabbath over fixing a man's foreskin. His point being, verse 24, that as they reject his teaching, they're judging with wrong judgment. That's what he says in verse 24. They're wrong to reject him. And so given that Jesus' teaching is pictured here as being powerful and divine and trustworthy and authoritative, and then usually and very often rejected, big question for us this morning as we wrap up this first of four points is, will I listen? Now we've had lots of examples of Jesus' teaching over the past couple of months in John's Gospel. And we've, we've got lots more to come in the coming months. And the question for us at this point is, will I listen to it? Will I judge with right judgment to... to use Jesus' words at the end of verse 24, or wrong judgment. In other words, will I see it for what it is? And the surprising truth about how to see it for what it is was tucked away in verse 17. I wonder if you spotted it as we read it. Have a look again at verse 17. Here's the secret of how to see Jesus' teaching for what it really is, and it's probably not what you'd expect. Verse 17. <coughs> if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching, my teaching, is from God. In other words, whether you recognize Jesus' teaching for what it is depends on what you want deep down. Whether deep down you want to do God's will. That's, that's what whether or not you're going to understand Jesus' teaching comes down to. So the key to seeing Jesus' teaching for what it is isn't in the mind. 
like any other kind of teaching in this world. It's not, Jesus' teaching isn't accessible only for clever people, or only for people with big IQs, or who've read lots of books, or who love books, or knowledgeable people. The key to seeing Jesus' teaching for what it really is, isn't in the mind, it's in the heart. You'll see it if you want to go God's way, and guess what? If you don't, you won't. So this is um, the famous Dr. Subramanian Chandrasekhar, Nobel Prize winner. And in 1947, he was one of the professors at Chicago University. And that year, he was scheduled to teach an advanced course in astrophysics. Um, but at the time, he was living miles away in Wisconsin, doing research at a particular observatory there. And he planned to commute in twice a week to teach the course, even though it would be during the harsh winter months. However, sign-ups for his course were very, very low. Only two students wanted to do it. And everyone expected Dr. Chandrasekhar to cancel, so he wouldn't waste his time, just over two students. But for the sake of those two students, he taught the class, commuting what was a 100-mile round trip twice a week through backcountry roads in the dead of winter. Well, as you'd expect for a Nobel Prize winner, his teaching was amazing. And even though no one else saw it for what it was and didn't want to be there, those two students did. They were called Chen Ning Yang and Sung Dao Li. And because they wanted to be there and learn, they listened. They did their homework. The reason we know their names is that 10 years later, they both won Nobel Prizes in physics. Jesus' powerful, divine, authoritative trustworthy teaching won't just lead us to a Nobel Prize where anything is small and, and transitory and relatively meaningless as that. It'll lead us to infinitely better lives starting now and going on for eternity. Not necessarily easier lives or nicer lives, but better lives that'll last forever and ever. And like Dr. Chandra Zekas, his teaching is largely ignored by most people. But the very, very simple determinant of whether or not we'll see it and benefit from it is, do we want to? What do we really want? Not to do with the mind, half as much as to do with the heart. You know, Three-year-olds, four-year-olds at the moment in Redeemer Kids can get aspects of Jesus' teaching and it will change their lives. It's not a matter of IQ or books. I mean, that, that's, God gives us those things and we need to utilize those. And, um, but it's really a matter of, do we want to? What do we really want? And whether or not I really want to listen to Jesus or how much I, w I want to will be clearly revealed by the super simple, obvious things that all of you guys already know. Am I prioritizing time in God's word without fail every single day? Am I getting under faithful preaching and teaching by ring-fencing Sunday church, my weekly growth group? Am I memorizing scripture? If I can't get to a growth group, am I getting into a triplet, even just once a month, with, with other people in my situation who find growth groups hard, maybe you're a, a mum or whatever, and organizing childcare, and am I doing whatever it takes regularly just to sit under Jesus' teaching, God's word? And those are the kinds of things that accepting Jesus' teaching looks like. The second aspect of Jesus here out of four is his identity. And we see this in verses 25 to 36. And the main question here is, who is Jesus? And specifically, is he the Christ? In other words, is he God's long-prophesied, majestic king of the universe, long-awaited by God's people, sent to rule over and bless his people? That's what the Christ is. So verse 25. 
some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Their logic being, maybe they're not trying anything against him, because much as they hate him, they're scared he just might be God's divine, long-prophesied king. And they go on, verse 27, But we know this man comes from, we know where this man comes from. Uh, they think he comes from Nazareth, uh, Galilee, um, which from the, the, the town of Nazareth in the region of Galilee, out of the sticks, very unimpressive place up north. And they say, when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So there are two minds are saying, maybe he's the Christ, but wait a second, we know where he comes from. And he, so he can't be the Christ because they believed, as per some rabbinical teaching at the time, that um, the Christ would be completely unknown when he appeared. So there, there are two minds. And what does Jesus have to say about all of this? As they're, as they're torn as to what his identity really is. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me? You know where I come from? And in, in the, the translation, the, the edition of the ESV I work from, um, there's a question mark at the end of that. There's no punctuation in the original Greek. Um, but but he's, he's saying, You think you know where I come from? And by the way, just in earthly terms, they, they didn't. As emerges later in this passage, they thought he was from Galilee. Originally, he was really from Bethlehem, thus exactly fulfilling the prophecy of where the Christ would come from. Typically, in John's Gospel, Jesus was probably talking in a double meaning anyway. He, when he says, you think you know where I come from, he probably wasn't even talking geographically, because where he's ultimately from, if we remember back to the beginning of chapter 1, is heaven. And Jesus goes on in verse 28, But I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me, the Father that is, is true, and him you do not know. Love the fact Jesus wasn't conflict averse. And he finishes in verse 29, I know him, and I come from him, and he sent me. And the two reactions to Jesus next, so he's, he's picked up their question of where he's from, and he's used it to expose their sort of ignorance and point out the truth that he's actually from heaven and then the two reactions to what he says give away two more things about his identity but here's the first in verse 30 so they were seeking to arrest him but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come and as we should know by now in John's gospel that phrase his hour refers to his impending death and in terms of what more this tells us about his identity, number one, it tells us his death is a key part of his identity. Seeing Jesus for who he really is has to involve a deep understanding of his death. If you don't get that Jesus died and why he died, then you haven't begun to understand him. And secondly, it teaches us that his sovereignty is a key part of his identity. So they want him dead, they're trying to arrest him, they can't even lay a hand on him. And why not? Because that's not part of the plan. Not yet at least. He's in control. He's sovereign. He's still got some more teaching to do before he decides to let him kill them. Let them kill him. So that's the first reaction to Jesus in verse 30, um, telling us that his identity involves his death and his sovereignty. And then the second reaction to Jesus in verse 31 is this. Verse 31, Yet many of the people believed in him. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? And so let me tie this all together in case you're starting to get lost. Um, in summary, 
in, in the midst of much confusion and people in two minds and, and much opposition as well as much excitement about him. Here we have Jesus portrayed as the Christ, God's King, um, from heaven. This is all building a picture of his identity. Uh, sent by God the Father, heading inexorably towards his death, sovereign over the events around him, performing what John calls signs, miracles, and radically dividing opinion. And then from verses 32 to 36, which we won't go into now, we could add to that portrait of his identity that his death is soon, that he'll be heading back to heaven, and that most people really don't have a clue about who he is and why he came. So, 1911, H.G. Wells, the amazing writer, um, wrote this haunting, tantalizing short story called The Door and the Wall. I say haunting, it's not a ghost story or anything like that. I know Halloween's coming up. It's just, it's kind of heartrending and, and it's achingly beautiful and it is tantalizing. And it's about this little boy called Lionel. And Lionel has a very lonely and unhappy upbringing. Um, he's an only child. His mother died when he was born. He's raised by this father who doesn't really like him, disapproves of him, and this very strict, cold governess. And one day when he's five and a half, or five years and four months old, um, both his father and his governess are just ignoring him, and he somehow manages to wander out of the garden and onto the street, and he starts walking the streets around West Kensington, near where he lives. And after wandering for a few miles, he eventually comes across this, this green door in a white wall. And he immediately feels drawn by it and compelled by some force to go through it. But at the same time, he feels like if he did, he'd be crossing some, some big scary line and that he would make his father really angry. He doesn't know why he feels this, but he, he, he's sort of anxious. So he distracts himself from the door by heading on further and looking in some windows of some nearby shops, but he's unable to get the mysterious door out of his mind. And eventually, this five-year-old runs back and goes through the door. And on the other side, he finds himself in this beautiful garden. And he's immediately flooded with a sense of, of happiness and well-being. And it's as if all of his life in West Kensington has vanished. And he, he forgets all of his anxieties and, and, and all of his um, unhappiness. And he has this strange feeling he's arrived in his true home. And he's convinced that this garden is in a completely different world from the world he's left behind. And then this, this beautiful girl appears, and she leads him down a tree-lined path, and he sees other people. And all of the other people he sees are beautiful and happy, and they radiate love and acceptance. And in particular, he finds these two other little children, and, they, and the three of them play games. And because of his loneliness in the other world, he is so happy it almost hurts. And later in his childhood, even though he tries with tears to remember what the games were so that he could replicate them, play them again with himself in his nursery, he can never quite remember what they were. Anyway, after the games, a very solemn lady appears and she reads to him a book that contains all the details of his life story. And when they get to the part where Lionel is standing in front of the green door and the white wall, he finds he's unable to turn the page. And suddenly he's back on the cold grey street in West Kensington. And he's found by a policeman, he's returned to his father's house, he's punished um, harshly for telling lies when he tries to explain what he thinks happened, but he cannot forget about the door. Well, he next sees the door when he's 12, and he's exploring different ways to get to school, 
and he glimpses it in a side street in the distance as he runs past and he, he almost turns off and goes through it but he's, he knows he'll be late for school if he stops, he's scared of being punished and so he just keeps running. And later he goes back to look for it and he actually goes back to look for it many other times from that point in his childhood and the really strange thing is he can never quite find it. The next time he sees the door is when he's 17. This time he's on his way to Oxford for a scholarship that if he gets it will change the rest of his life, give him a very successful career. And, because, um, and, and he sees the door for a fleeting second as the cab whizzes past. And instinctively he tells the driver to stop. But then he's embarrassed and he changes his mind and tells the driver to keep going because he's so focused on this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity that he's on his way to and he can't bring himself to miss it. So on he goes, and he gets the scholarship, and later tells himself he made the right decision. And he goes on to have a very successful career, in, um, as, and becomes a great politician. But as Lionel grows older and becomes an old man, all of his great accomplishments begin to lose their attraction. And he sees that little green door in the, in the white wall a few more times in his life, in different places in London. But every time something distracts him, and every time there's some urgent reason why just at that particular second he can't go through. At one time he's rushing to his father's deathbed. Another time he's, he's rushing to make a crucial vote in the House of Commons. Another time he's in the middle of a conversation with someone and the conversation's career-defining and he, he can't cut it short. And then as the years continue to go by he begins to have this agonizing regret in his heart that he never went through. And so he starts spending more and more of his time walking the streets of London by night searching for the door, sometimes almost in tears, and it has to be by night because he's a famous politician by now. But he can't find it anymore. Well, everything I've just said is what he tells a friend of his late one night um, as an old man. And sometime later, a few months later, his friend is reading the paper and reads of Lionel's death. And I'm not going to tell you right now how Lionel dies or whether or not he ever made it through the door and how the story ends. You're going to have to look that up for yourself. It's by H.G. Wells, The Door on the Wall. It's captivating. Look it up. It's free online. Here's why I tell it. Here's the point. For some people here, these Sunday mornings looking at Jesus that you won't always have because you'll move away or your heart will change or maybe you'll die or you won't always have these. We won't always have these. These Sunday mornings are your door, are your green door. And I'm, I'm thrilled that we're the kind of church that regularly has guests and seekers and, and people coming in from different backgrounds to experience our community and our love and, and a place to explore and investigate the truth about Jesus. I'm even more thrilled that more than one of those people just in recent weeks have decisively given their lives to Jesus and become Christians. And there might be someone here this morning who is one of those seekers and, and you, would, you wouldn't say right now you're a full-on follower of Jesus. You still have questions, but if you're honest, you'd admit in your heart of hearts that yes, if push came to shove, you guess you would say Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who was sovereign over events around him, who did perform signs to authenticate his identity, who was focused on his mission of dying to pay for the sins of all who would later believe in him. And if that's you, can I urge you, take the window of opportunity that is open to you just right now and go ahead and give your life to him. And, and that's the question of these verses to you. Given his identity, will I follow? Because if you wait until next Sunday, or, or next week, or whenever you think will be you know, less inconvenient, 
like for Lionel or less embarrassing, or if you wait until your deathbed before giving your life to Jesus, your heart might have hardened by then. You, you might find you're not able to repent of your sins and, and trust in him at that point. You'll be a different person. It, it'll be too late. The door will have gone. And most people in the world, the, the big majority of people in the world, including, including in Croydon, wouldn't get this portrait of Jesus that we've just looked at in verses 25 to 36. At best, they'd be highly confused, exactly like in this passage. The reactions to Jesus in this passage are timeless. And so right now, if you basically do get it, if you do recognize the portrait, and you're, you're not like one of the people in this passage, um, that, that's a highly valuable, unusual window of opportunity. That is your green door. And so at the end of this message, in a few minutes, there'll be some silence. Why not use that to silently pray just the very simple ABC of stepping through the door? Admit, believe, come. Admit your failure to live for God. Believe that Jesus died. Tell God that you believe Jesus died to pay for your sin and come to him, giving your life to him, inviting him to be your rightful master. ABC, admit, believe, come. Maybe someone here needs to pray that in a few minutes when we're done. Final two aspects of Jesus in this passage are more brief. And the next is this. Jesus' promise of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And this is in verses 37 to 39. So verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. Just going to hit pause there for a second and ask, not a rhetorical question, what feast are we talking about, everyone? Anyone remember? Say again? Feast of feasts. Uh, yes, well, this was um, in Jewish folklore, as I'll come on, to, yeah, regarded as one of the very highest feasts, the Feast of Feasts. Beginning of chapter 7, John tells us. Booths, tabernacles, exactly, thank you, same thing. Um, and last week I said how this week we'd see how Jesus fulfills this feast. And I think he fulfills it in a few ways in this passage. I'm just going to show you one of them, which is this one right here. The festival um, of tabernacles, or booths as it was known, was to commemorate the time when God's people were nomads living in the desert. Living in tabernacles, living in booths, literally. In other words, temporary shelters made of sticks and commemorating how God cared for them and looked after them. And as part of that festival, every morning during this feast, the chief priest would ceremonially head down to the sacred pool of Siloam with a golden pitcher, golden jug, and he would dip it into the, the pool of Siloam and then lead a big parade all the way back up to the temple. And this was meant to be the most joyful moment in the life of Israel. That's why Judy says it was the Feast of Feasts. It was said that whoever did not know the Feast of Tabernacles did not know joy. And when the priest got to the temple holding this golden jug full of water, he would shout to the crowd, with joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. And then he would pour the water out on the ground. And in Israel, in the desert, when drought was a constant fear, no one poured good water on the ground. One writer says it was a kind of acted out parable that God would one day satisfy his people with more water, with more life than they could handle. And it was at that feast, maybe at that particular moment, that a rabbi suddenly stood up and cried out in front of the crowd at the top of his voice. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in 
me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water so the festival was about Jesus it always had been for centuries though they, no one knew and now he was here himself but what exactly is Jesus referring to with those words they, they sound nice but specifically what does he mean what exactly does he mean by these rivers of living water? And that's when John comes in with a very helpful editorial comment for us to answer that question, verse 39. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. <coughs> so just to zoom out a bit briefly provide some wider biblical framework about the Spirit. Here's the deal with the Spirit. Here's what Jesus was talking about. Two things. Number one, all true Christians have the Spirit. Got to get that straight. Um, they have to have the Spirit by definition, otherwise they wouldn't be Christians. The Spirit is how Christians are able to become Christians. The Spirit is what the person who comes to you when you're spiritually dead and makes you spiritually alive so that you're able to reach out to God in repentance and faith. And that's called regeneration. Jesus teaches all about that back in John 3. And doing things like speaking in tongues isn't a sign necessarily of whether or not you have received the Spirit. That's a, that would be a sign of whether or not you have the gift of speaking in tongues, which is a particular spiritual gift out of several. Lots of Christians don't have. I don't have it, for example. Christians who don't have aren't necessarily second-class citizens. You're not better if you do. Um, that's something different. All Christians have the Spirit second thing to say is that the Spirit then dwells in every true Christian in a very special way for the rest of their life. And that's the sense in which Jesus is talking at the end of verse 39. Uh, end of verse 39, John says, As yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So that God had been giving the Spirit in the very basic sense, the regeneration sense, since the beginning of the Old Testament. That's how God's people from the very beginning, from Adam and Eve onwards, have been able to trust him and follow him but it's only from Pentecost that you read about in Acts 2 once Jesus had ascended back to heaven as John says in verse 39 and being glorified then that God's people started receiving the spirit in this special intimate ongoing way that they hadn't done before Pentecost and that's the way in which we Christians have the spirit to this day we're super privileged as God's people to be this side of Pentecost but we mustn't be complacent about the way in which we have the Spirit now. It is possible to have more or less of the Spirit's influence in your life. This isn't level for all believers. What's level is that we all have the Spirit. What's not level is that some of us are more influenced by the Spirit in our lives and some of us are much less influenced. For example, it is possible, the Bible says, to keep in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5. It's possible to pray in the Spirit, Ephesians 6. It's possible to be filled with the Spirit, Acts 2. Talk about that in a sec. It's possible just to be in the Spirit, Revelation 1. We can talk about what those things mean, uh, some of them another time. It's also possible to grieve the Spirit, Ephesians 4. It's possible to quench the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5. In other words, it's possible to work against the Spirit in our lives, even as Christians, and reject Him and frustrate Him. And the degree to which you're either welcoming the Spirit into your life, or pushing him away, rejecting him, will have massive, and I mean massive, bearing on how your life goes. Um, it'll make the difference, just one example, it'll make the difference of your life being filled with what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians uh, 5, love, joy, peace,
peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or on the other hand, if you're, if you're doing things in your life that are pushing the spirit away, your life will be filled with the opposite of all of those things. So apathy and unhappiness and stress and conflict and impatience and frustration, unkindness, evil, betraying others, being betrayed yourself, the opposite of faithfulness, uh, harshness, destructive impulsivity, the opposite of self-control. So my point is the spirit matters, being filled with the spirit. And he's a precious gift given by Jesus, as he says in verse 39 here, to his people from Pentecost onwards, that includes us. And according to Jesus, it's he's a gift, the spirit, that will cause our hearts to well up with, with this spiritual life. And so the challenge here is, will I quench him? Will I, will I be pushing him away? Will I reject him? In other words, will I live in a way that welcomes and accepts Jesus' gift, in verses 38, 39, into my life, or will I live in a way that rejects the gift, harming myself and others, quenching the spirit? And um, just briefly, here are three, three of my top ways to quench the spirit, okay? Number one, ignore your conscience. So when you sin, you know it's wrong, you feel slightly bad, just ignore that feeling, just push on through, the feeling will fade, life goes on, God will understand, and hey, if you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven, right? So don't worry that it'll gradually cause your heart to harden. Uh, just ignore your conscience. That's the first way to quench the spirit. Uh, number two, neglect the word. Um, Ephesians 6 describes the word of God as the sword of the spirit. In other words, the more access we give the word to our lives, the more access we're actually giving the spirit to our lives. So the important thing is just to be really relaxed about things like staying up super late in the evening. Have more fun, you get more entertainment you know, on devices, you get more work done, whatever. Even though that means you'll find it extra hard to get up early the next morning for time in God's Word. Um, don't bother buying Bible reading notes. Certainly don't bother getting into an accountability group to do with quiet times with two or three friends. Um, just neglect the Word. Okay, that's uh, the second way to quench the Spirit. Here's one final way. Um, avoid situations where you might need to be filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit is a phenomenon that can happen any number of times in a Christian's life, hopefully many times. Um, it may or may well not be accompanied by things like speaking in tongues, uh, but being filled with the Spirit is uh, what, when God gives a Christian special strength or special insight or special comfort um, or sense of his presence, specifically, normally, to empower that Christian for a particular ministry situation when it's needed. And, and therefore, if you play it really safe, you'll never need the Spirit, really. Just, just play it safe. Um, don't evangelize. Don't stand up for Jesus at work. Definitely don't take any big risks for God. Don't step out in faith. Uh, don't be bold. So don't give sacrificially. Certainly don't become a missionary, anything like that. Um, just always play it super safe. Okay? And there will be three ways of resisting and throwing away the life available to Christians that Jesus promises here. And let's be welcoming the Spirit into our lives as this amazing gift that Jesus offers. Let's not be quenching him. Which brings us to the final section, which is about different reactions to Jesus. And uh, this is in verses 40 to 52. For time, we're not going to go into those verses in depth. But in summary, 40 to 52, different reactions to Jesus, those verses show a variety of reactions, ranging from cagey, like with Nicodemus, if you remember him, we last met him back in chapter 3. Um, he's on a journey. 
Maybe some of us uh, are like him on a journey. Um, so from cagey to confused to hostile, which is the main reaction. And so the one big question this last section asks us is, as I start to close, will I persevere? In other words, will I keep going with Jesus? If I am going with him and following him, uh, doing it faithfully, I'll be going against the flow, big time. Um, I might be laughed at. <coughs> uh, I might be thought an idiot. I might be discriminated against if I'm really following Jesus. Um, I might be made to feel like I don't belong, or the odd one out, or a bit of a clown, or naive. And so I should just know that in advance. And the question is, will I keep going despite that? Will I persevere? Um, when I was an undergrad, a friend of mine called Richard, who was discipling me, uh, gave me a great example. What he would pray, and what I got into the habit of praying, was the prayer, Lord, please would I still be trusting you and living for you, no matter how hard it gets, five years from now, and ten years from now, and twenty years from now, and fifty years from now, if I'm not already in heaven. And the reason I'm standing before you this morning is that God's been answering some of those prayers in my life. I could tell you friends of mine who weren't praying that um, and who have fallen away, who didn't persevere. And I still pray those prayers. And they're not bad things to pray because if we're following Jesus, we're going against the flow. And I, I could point you to friends of mine who've fallen away. Equally, I could point you to the Ellis's and the Margaret's who have been plugging on for Jesus, and, and the Crichtons, and Fenella, and, and, and so many other people in our precious family who have been plugging on for him decade after decade after decade after decade. We've got a lot to learn from them. So will I persevere? Let's have some silence to collect our thoughts, and then I'll pray. Loving Father, thank you so much for Jesus' teaching. Lord, thank you for your word as well, your teaching. Thank you for this teaching in our laps right now that is trustworthy and authoritative and powerful and divine and, and usually rejected. Please help us to listen to it. Father, thank you too for Jesus' identity. Thank you for the, the fully orbed, rich portrait of his identity in these verses. And Lord, <clears throat> I, I beg you to have mercy on any among us this morning who haven't yet decisively given their lives to him. Would they, if, if they see him for who he is, would they not waste that fleeting opportunity? Would they go through that door while they can and follow him? Father, thank you for Jesus' promise of the Spirit. Lord, th th he, he wants to give us life, spiritual life, welling up out of our hearts. And... We pray that we wouldn't be quenching the Spirit, grieving the Spirit, rejecting that stunning, life-changing gift. But we want our lives to be filled with the fruit of the Spirit, not the opposites. And thank you too for this honest reminder to us in all the reactions to Jesus of how he's often met with confusion at best and, and more often hostility. And so we pray that, again, you'd have mercy on us 
and help us persevere, help us to keep going, help us to learn from the senior saints in our family. Would none of us be missing on the final day? And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.